Good morning, Watermark. I hope everybody is well. I hope you're all getting along, uh, taking care of each other. Um, today's passage comes from Acts chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to go to verse 7. So follow along with me. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against them, uh, the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God was spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and the number of priests became obedient to the faith. All right. So here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to start off talking about um, sort of the context of what's going on here, these different groups of Jews, the widows. Um, we're going to talk about a little bit about the rise of justice in the church and where that came from. Um, we're going to talk about our role in all of that and how we know what our role is. Uh, and probably point out some things you maybe didn't know about the ancient world and and the kind of people that were drawn to the to the movement of Christianity. Um, and then I'm going to sort of put it in context with what we're going with going through right now. Um, what do we do? How do we react? Do we blame? Do we? Um, what do we do? Um, so I'm going to start off by talking about uh, the grumbling in the camp here. Um, so Luke starts off by basically saying that there's two different kinds of of telling us there's, there's two different kinds of Jews in the early church. There are these Hellenistic Jews and there are these Hebraic Jews. Um, now, this is not a time uh, in the time of Gentiles in the church. So it's not, these aren't Jews and Gentiles. Um, as far as, I think as far as Luke is concerned, the very first Gentiles in the church is Cornelius and his household, um, whom, whom Peter uh, reaches. Uh, so... The Hellenistic Jews are basically Jews that, that did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, in the ancient world, if you were Jewish and you spoke um, Hebrew or Aramaic, um, you were sort of higher class. You were um, more a better representation of God's people in their eyes, in their day. Um, you were higher, high, highly revered, basically, in their day. Um, and so these there were a lot of, of um, Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews uh, in the ancient world as well, they were oftentimes um, children of the diaspora. Um, there were regular times throughout the Roman history where Rome would banish the Jewish people from different cities, from different places, oftentimes from Jerusalem altogether, in order to uh, sort of control the population of people. The Jewish people were very anti-Roman empire and they were very prone to uprisings and riots. And you can see that all through the New Testament as well. And Jesus constantly actually trying to quell them by saying, hey, um, who do you think I am? And they're like, you're the Messiah. And he's like, hey, do me a favor. Don't tell anybody right now. We don't want to cause any, any violence. We don't want to cause any uprisings. We're going to do this differently. I'm a different kind of king than a violent one. Um, and so these Hebraic Jews um, are 
many of them have come back to Jerusalem either for the for the festivals for the Passover or have joined the church and stuck around, um, and their widows need to be taken care of. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, so these Hellenistic Jews. On on the other end, there's these Hebraic Jews, and the Hebraic Jews are obviously the opposite of the Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews speak Hebrew, Aramaic. Um, they live in and around Jerusalem, and if you spoke these languages, again, you were considered of higher honor, higher status. It was like being a true member of God's people, untainted by the world around you, right? Um, and so both of these kinds of Jews were in the early church, and many of them were widows. Um, and there was this growing need, uh, this growing inequity. Um, and it appears as though, according to the text here, there was some grumbling and complaining because the Hellenistic Jews were apparently getting less food and, and, and worse treatment than the Hebraic Jews, uh, the Hebraic Jewish widows. Um, all of them needed to be fed. Um, but the general consensus was that the, the Greek-speaking Jewish widows felt like they were being discriminated against, they were getting less, and so they're raising accusations against the um, Hebraic leaders that they're treating, they're having preferential treatment for the Hebraic widows. Now, let's talk about the widows. Widows in the ancient world were some of the most vulnerable people in existence, um, especially ones who didn't have any family at all in the city to care for them. Um, women at that time were considered property. It's a patriarchal culture. They were property. They could, they could not own land. They couldn't provide for themselves without being connected to men in some way. Um, <clears throat> and so a woman who had lost her husband um, could not always reach out to her children. They didn't really have postal system. Even if they did... Um, they, these women weren't literate. There, there were not really m very many literate women at all. Um, that sort of arose with the church. Um, but they couldn't write letters. They couldn't probably afford to hire a scribe to write them a letter and to send it. And even if they could, what are the chances that their children, if, if 98% of the people are illiterate, what are the chances that their children could read the letter, um, or receive it in some way? So oftentimes they're just alone and having to survive. No food, no land, no income, nothing. And so they're coming to the church for sustenance. Now, um, the church was taking care of these women. And these days, we tend to think of, of, of the church today as just sort of a place where we do our spiritual growth, right? Like where we, um, we go to the church to feed our souls. Um, that is a new construct in the ancient world. You went to the church whole for your holistic body like when you were sick when you needed food when you were hungry when you couldn't provide for yourself the church was there to meet these needs we have since then sort of given these things away to the governments in which we live um and and for the most part i think it's admirable and honorable that the, that, that earthly governments learn these things from uh from the early church um because the ancient roman empire the setting in which they're living um was terrible uh, in the ancient world, there were no hospitals, there was no education, there were no social programs. There was sort of hospitals, but they weren't really hospitals. Uh, and they weren't for you and I, right? Let's be honest. Um, most widows, if they wanted to survive, would end up in prostitution. This was the only way that they could typically make money. Um, that was the Roman world. Many of these women, if they didn't go into prostitution, would just die. Now, um, a step up above the Roman world uh, was, was Judaism. Um, a certain percentage of what actually came into the temple 
that was given to the temple as far as food and money goes was put in these storerooms to provide for the hungry and for the widow and for the orphan. This was in keeping with the commands of God all through the Old Testament. Um, many times throughout history, the temple, though, was, was failing to actually adequately provide for the poor in the land. So it wasn't always something you could depend on. There's plenty of times throughout history where the prophets come in and they're like, you're not taking care of the immigrants, the widow, the orphan. You're not taking care of the needy amongst you. And, and, uh, and, and God is going to render judgment against you because of this. Now, um, so the temple was a huge step up from the Roman Empire. But uh, in the first century, we have the birth of the church which actually came about this in a totally different way, which came at these, these things from a different angle altogether. When the church was born, something completely new happened, and it gave rise to this completely new system of taking care of the poor for very specific reasons. I want to talk about those. Um, uh, the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And all of this was rooted in this idea of what's called the holy priesthood. If you're not familiar with the holy priesthood, um, I'm going to explain this for you now, and I think this will open your eyes to exactly why the church was so different in how they handled uh, the poor and how they provided for them and the poor and the widows, these widows in particular. Um, so here's how it works in the ancient Jewish world in this time, um, in the time of the first century, there were about 18,000 Jewish priests living in Judea and Galilee in the first century scattered throughout the land. They were all Levites. They were a member, uh, a specific descendant of the tribe of Levi. Um, and they were raised, as the, as the Levitical people, they were raised with the temple in their minds always. Their role was to take care of the temple. One of the main duties of the priestly line was taking care of the temple. And so if you weren't in Jerusalem, you're taking up offerings and sending it in to take care of the temple, or you're, you're sending people to work on the temple, all this stuff. And so their roles were to keep the building strong and healthy, the temple, uh, to keep it, the operations running smoothly, keep it functioning, keep all of the, um, the positions filled. Um, to make sure that, that it was always open, always stocked, always ready to offer reconciliation to the people 24 hours a day for the forgiveness of sins, um, a place where God and humanity could come together on the earth. Um, and so, excuse me. Um, and so this was the role of the priest in the ancient world. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you see this idea shift into something else completely. But because at the beginning of Acts, what you find is this emphasis on the temple no longer being a building of stone, but now being people. It's not a temple made of stone. It's a temple made of flesh. It's a temple made of people. And when they gather, this is them. Um, Paul actually tells the church in Corinth, um, Corinth was a city with lots of pagan temples. And at some point, there's this sort of feeling amongst the Christians that like, we need a building, we need a temple. Christians in the first century were not allowed to own land. Uh, they, they were not allowed to like buy a building as a people, as a Christian church. Um, that didn't come until about the third century and it started underground in the catacombs. Um, so Paul writes to them and Paul says, look, you don't need a building. Don't you know, like you don't need stacked stones. Don't you know that your body is the temple when you gather together? You are the temple in that city. All these temples are all around you, and you don't have a physical temple, but when you come together in that city, you are the temple. Um, now, that verse oftentimes is, is misused to talk about like us personally, like, like don't, get, don't get tattoos because your body is the temple of God, right? And I say that too. It's um, a joke. Um, Paul was talking to a group of people. 
Always. Your body, as in your gathering of people, is, is, is a temple. Um, he's not talking about their individual bodies. He's talking about the collective body of Christ, the church, when they gather together. He says, when you gather together, you are the temple. You are the presence of Yahweh in your city. You're the presence of King Jesus, God. Now, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 here. Um, because Peter um, actually expands this to be this huge, very important idea. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Um, it says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Um, Peter takes this idea that yes, you are the temple. You are individual stones that come together. And not only are you, are you the, the stones of the temple, you are also um, the priests in the temple. You are the holy priesthood, okay? Now, in this idea, if they are the temple now, and they also are the priests, this is where we find the birth of early Christian justice ministries, of what, of what we would call today um, like social justice, okay? Even though that word has somehow been um, taken over and, and tried to turn into some American political thing. This has always been an ancient Christian thing, um, all the way back in the first century. The birth of justice uh, in the church came from their theology that we are the temple, and we are also the priests. And if we're all priests, and our role as priests is to take care of the temple, then their primary role was to take care of each other, physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. This is where justice is born in the ancient world. This is not just a step above Rome. This is a step above ancient Judaism as well. Um, this is putting you, uh, putting you in, in, in full charge of the care of the other members of the temple as the stones, um, as the living stones built together. Um, this is where ministry for other people was born, taking care of them. If you look at Acts chapter 6, you actually see something really fascinating. Uh, let's go back to Acts chapter 6. Let's look at verse 7. It says, uh, oh, th this is awesome. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And watch this. And a large number of priests became obedient to the, uh, to the faith. A large number of priests now became obedient to the faith. Um, so what's happening is this language of we are now a temple and we are doing the work of the priests. If you have 18,000 priests in the ancient world and one temple, there's a lot of priests who feel like they aren't really being good Levites. There's a lot of priests who feel like they're not really doing the job they were born to do. And then they look at the church and they see the church actually taking care of each other and speaking in priestly language as they take care of each other and the priest's eyes are open and their hearts are yearning for this thing. And they come running to the church and become followers of Jesus so that they can do their priestly work that they were born to do. All right. This is a huge idea. And so all these priests are coming out of the temple and coming to the church. This is why these priests are joining them. So, um, the actual priests in the temple begin to join them and take part in this priestly lifestyle that they're witnessing. And they're like, they're doing what I want to do and they join the church. The whole point of this, Watermark, is that not only are you the temple when we come together, but you are also the priests, um, which begs the question, as you look around at each other, even through these computer screens right now, through your phones, as you call each other up, is how's the temple doing, first off? 
is the temple crumbling? Do you see cracks in the walls? Um, are the foundations of our temple shaking? Um, when you see these things, when you see the cracks in the temple stones, when you see the disorder in the system, when you see that some part of the temple is in shambles and has not been looked after, um, when you see that some of the vital pieces are missing, are broken, um, what's your response? Do you, do you look around? Do you shoot off an email to the elders of the governing board or the staff of, of the community, of the church? And do you say, hey, just so you know, this stone or that stone is looking a little unstable, a little shaky. The mortar's coming out. It doesn't really, it's not fitting. It's not holding up well. Or do you as the priest um, realize that you are surrounded by a great many other priests? And do you gather the tools that are at your disposal? And do you get to freaking fixing what is broken in the temple? That is what we are to be doing, not just right now, but all the time, taking part in the restoration of the temple. We are the temple. We are the place where God dwells in this world. That is our role. Part of this is I, I want you to understand that you are empowered and free to do the work of the priests of God, of the reconciliation to God and humanity, the restoration of all things. That can be taken part in every moment of your day. Um, now, let's pause there for a second, and let's talk about blame. Let's talk about action. Um, it was probably pretty tempting uh, for both of these two sides, the Hellenistic widows and the Hebraic widows uh, and the leaders of, of sort of these groups, um, to start pointing fingers at each other. This is what human beings like to do. Both sides likely felt some sort of, of offense in this whole thing. The Hellenistic Jews are probably feeling offense because their, their widows are being overlooked. Um, they likely feel that it's because the Greek speaker, um, not Hebrew Aramaic speaker, like, like, like the, the proud Jewish people, like they're being ignored. Um, and the Hebraic Jews, honestly, think about it from their angle as well. They're now facing accusations of bias, of racism, of prejudice. Um, and so suddenly their defenses are up, right? Um, and they're having to explain themselves and their actions. And when someone comes at you like that, you, you tend to just instantly defenses go up and you fight or flight. Um, and so here's something about that. I wanted to talk about that just for a second. Um, psychologists tell us that, that our brains are just natural born storytellers. I mean, most of the time, we, we do not have all the information to what is happening around us, to what we're seeing, what, what is coming into our eyeballs and into our ears. Um, oftentimes, we just don't have all the information about people's actions, about their motivations, about what's going on behind the scenes. And we definitely don't have any information about what they're thinking. Um, and so oftentimes, in difficult times, we tend to um, make sense of people's actions by telling stories. We fill in the gaps with storytelling. Um, and this is a natural consequence of millions of years of, of us sort of adapting to threats around us. And we're telling ourselves stories. This looks dangerous. That looks dangerous. I think that's going to attack me. This is going to attack me. And so you're looking, your brain is looking for people attacking and, and telling stories about who is a threat to you and who is not. Okay. It's one of the many ways um, that our brain serves to protect us. Right. And so we're constantly telling ourselves stories about the people around us. They were telling stories as well. I assume 
stories that like, they don't look at me. Um, they don't value me the same way that they value other people who are more like them or, or they must hate me because of the language that I speak or the way that I look or the way that I dress or my people. Um, they must have prejudice against me. Uh, they must be doing this on purpose. This can't be a simple matter of overlooking or a failure of the system. So we're constantly telling ourselves these stories about the people around us. When someone cuts us off on the highway, we assume that they either think they're better than us or they just maybe want us to, you want me to die in a fiery crash. Why do you want me to die on this roadside? Um, and we get really mad and we road rage, right? Um, and so these Hellenistic Jew, Jewish widows are, are telling themselves stories probably about their Hebraic counterparts. And oftentimes it, it is, it's tempting to tell stories and engage in finger pointing where blame and shame are doled out to everyone. But the apostles... If you look at what they're doing in this passage, go back and reread it this week several times. The apostles aren't engaging in this. They're not casting blame and they're not storytelling. Um, they're learning from their, their rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and what did their rabbi do? Well, if you turn to John chapter 9, I actually touched on this this week in our um, uh, Bible for lunch session. Um, John chapter 9, that's back here. Um, and I want to look at verse, verse 1 through 4 here. It says this. Uh, As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as long as, as it is day, we must do the work of him. Who sent me now? So in John nine, the group of Pharisees and his disciples, even they're looking at a blind man who has been blind since he was born. And they say, whose fault is this? His own or his parents. And Jesus circumvents the entire argument. Jesus does not engage in blame here. Um, we all need to learn from this and pay attention to this. Jesus doesn't learn, doesn't engage in the blaming. Instead, he says he didn't do this. It has nothing to do with, with who sinned and who didn't sin. This has to do with what are we going to do? It, it, Jesus answer. Um, is, is, is not to point blame and say who's at fault. Instead, he specifically says, um, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. And he says before that, he said, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, Jesus says, my response here is not to ask whose fault this mess is. My response to human suffering, instead of asking whose fault it is, is to ask what I can do to help fix this. How can God be revealed in this, in the presence of this human suffering? What part can I play in the healing of this? And as long as I am here, um, I will be engaged in this. And as long as all of us are here, Jesus says, we should be engaged in the making things right. That's how we should do this. So in Jesus' eyes, what matters most is not who's at fault, but who, how we are going to respond as God's people. If we want to cast blame, we ultimately will end up casting it back on ourselves. It's so fun to sit around and cast blame. Honestly, it's, it's fulfilling. It's a fulfilling thing to do. We've all taken part in it. Um, but here's the thing. If we blame leadership, um, we can't just blame leadership. We then have to shift the blame to those who chose that leadership. But it's never just about those who chose that leadership because that leads us to look even deeper at the cultures and the systems in which we exist that we are all not, not just being raised in but actively creating in the lives that we are living. You are culture making. Right now, all the time, we are all culture making. All of us. Um, and ultimately, 
what we find is that we are all both being disciplined by and taking part in the disciplining, uh, the discipling of people around us. We have been discipled by the culture we are in, and we are taking part in the discipling of that culture we are in um, every time we step into the public sphere and engage with people. And so ultimately, the people at the top arose from the culture that we all belong to. Okay, we created that. Um, and in the end, that also creates us. There is not only are we creating it, it is creating us. It is going in circles. And we've talked about this before. Therefore, you can't solve this problem by either blaming the people at the top or, or changing the people at the top. Neither of those things will actually fix any of our problems. Um, and the children of Israel always knew this. Um, there were many times in Israel's history where things had gotten off track, tons of times, and they knew it. They were all collectively taking part in idolatry. They were all collectively ignoring the needs of the poor and the widows and the orphans in their day. Sure, some of them were pointing out, there's some needs, there's some needs, there's some needs, but none of them were collectively rising up to fix them, okay? And so ultimately, the blame for Israel, collectively, they never pointed at the top and say, it's our king's fault. They always knew it was their own fault. And so the answer in Israel was not a change of leadership. It was a collective confession and a collective repentance. It was, it was being reborn again. Um, this happened every single year. That was the point of uh, what's called Yom Kippur, what we call the Day of Atonement, or at one minute, as I tend to call it, so we can make better sense of that word. The Day of at one minute, um, where the priests and the prophets, the judges, the kings, the farmers, the shepherds, the wives, the children— all the employees from top to bottom, um, everyone from top to bottom took part in the confession of sins and the weeping over our collective failures. Everyone took part in this. No one stood up and said, um, hey, you at the top, when are you going to apologize for things looking the way that they do? It was everyone from the top to the bottom collectively coming together on the day of Edwinement and confessing and offering sacrifices. Sacrifices were all offered, like in other words, they're all actually giving something. They're not asking the people at the top to give everything. They are all giving something. There's this collective mourning. There's this collective commitment that like we will all pour out and start fresh. Okay. What we need is not blame shifting. Um, that is, we don't need to shift the problem away from ourselves at all. What we need is a day or a time of atonement, atonement, because our sins are exposed right now. All of our sins are exposed. And we know this. All of our failures are now laying out before of us, uh, before us. Uh, the solution doesn't start at the top. Leadership is merely a representation of what is happening at the bottom, especially in a democracy, even in a church. Leadership is a representation of collective health. What we need now is a new culture and a new people in this world who exist in a new way, who have done away with the old, who have been what the scriptures call born again to a living hope towards something different and new. The genius of the church, okay, the genius of the church, uh, of everyone being the, both the temple and the priest, of everyone in the church being the temple and the priest, uh, the genius of all of this is that the, the, that the power of the church is flat, okay? And so the solution doesn't start at the top with the leadership. It actually starts at the bottom with all of us and with the leadership lowering themselves to the bottom, okay? Look at the temple around you. Look at the church. 
realize that you are not only the body of Christ, you are not only the temple of, of God's people, um, the place where God and humanity come together in this world, where, 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 where things are made whole, where people are connected, reconnected with God, where their sins are offered. You are not only the, the temple, okay, but you are also the priest. You are entrusted with the care of each other. Um, look for the cracks. Look for the disorder. Look for the neglected parts. And then ask yourself, not who is at fault, but ask yourself, how can I fix this? And if you can't, call the other priests up and get your tools together and get fixing. This is our role. This is the biggest thing we could be focusing on right now. Why don't we first do our collective prayer together, our collect prayer, um, and then we'll enter into a time of communion, uh, communion and, uh, and meditation on things of God. So if you, would, uh, if you have it, I'll have it up on the screen here for you. So read along with me, say it out loud, and say it as if you mean it. All right, pray this with me. O oh God, lifter of the lowly, our healer, be with us in our isolation. Bring connection where there is disconnection. Healing where there is disease. Trust where there is fear. Love where there is disdain. Caring where there is indifference. Provision where there is lack. And bind our hearts together with our siblings all over the world in unity with yours. Out of many, make us one, as you are three in one. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your communion elements, um, right now I'd like to pause and, and take communion together. Um, there are two elements in communion. There's bread and there's wine. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for all of us. Um, this is not just something that happened. It's something that should happen every day. The body of Christ should be broken um, and poured out. The wine symbolizes the blood of Christ poured out for us. All of this brings about our, not only our acceptance and our inclusion into the presence of God, um, but also um, our salvation, um, our healing, our reconciliation with God and with each other. And so, um, watermark, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. As we do this, we remember Jesus Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, be with us, be before us and behind us. Pave the way forward, always reminding us that, uh, that you have been there. You have, you have charged through death straight into resurrection. And if you've done that, then we can continue to follow. That your path is the way forward. It is how healing will be brought into this world. Thank you for each and every pair of eyes that has, uh, has joined us here this morning um, and collectively is taking part in the active renewal of all things. Um, fill them with strength. Give them courage. Give them peace in heart and soul and mind. Um, give them eyes to see what you're doing and teach them how to respond. In your name, amen. 
Grace and peace, Watermark. Have an incredible week.